0: blog talk radio
1: hey everybody and welcome to the writer's process podcast i'm your host jonathan moody and i'm here with an awesome special guest uh, Jason Paul Collin. How you doing, Jason?
0: I'm good. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing fantastic. Um, just to let our uh, listeners know real quick, um, this is the second to last episode on Blog Talk Radio. Um, we will be going into Indie Film Cafe in January for the uh, third season, which will be, I guess, the uh, Writer's Process Hollywood. So that would be pretty cool. Um, so we're going to be – I'll be out in L.A., Hopefully, interviewing some uh, filmmakers face to face as opposed to uh, over the phone. So, are you a Hollywood uh, writer or do you live like somewhere else? I live in uh, Racine,
0: Wisconsin. I did spend uh, three years, I think, in four years. I was in LA for four years. uh, Oh, wow. In the 90s and early 2000s. And then I moved to Chicago for a year to work for Femme Fatale's magazine. And then I moved back to uh my hometown of Racine.
1: Okay. So, and uh what yeah. like what made you want to leave uh uh LA?
0: Um it was a combination of things. It was the funny thing is is that I was actually, the film career was actually starting to take off when I left. Um I got a job offer in Chicago to work for Femme Fatales, which was kind of like this unbelievable dream for me, you know, because I'd been a huge fan of the magazine and had been writing for them for about two years when the opportunity came up, and 9-11 had happened, and it just was kind of, um, I guess you had to be in LA the day that it happened, and although there were no attacks in LA, um, you were, were being treated like there were attacks happening, and so it just was kind of like the social mood of being there, and missing my family and this job offer in Chicago. And I was coming home for visits and I had nieces that were being born and they didn't know who I was. and So it was kind of this like big blob of things that were happening that made that decision for me. So.
1: Yeah. Well, wow. That's great. That Um yeah. You were able to, you know, even though that happened, you know, obviously it didn't, I don't think it really ruined your career or anything. You just continued to work, you know? Right. Oh
0: yeah, I mean, yeah, the, and I actually took a step up. So it was all kind of a, uh, I when I was living in Los Angeles, um, I had, kind of, my my in was an actress named Brink Stevens, who's was a, uh, you know, a scream queen, and she introduced me to David Dakota and Jerry Bookwalter and a bunch of other B movie people like Fred Olen Ray and um, Jim Wynorski. and so. Um J.R. Bookwalter introduced me to David Dakota, and Dakota was the one who actually started giving me some work wor- on his films. So I did five movies with him, and um, I even um, – he actually hired me to write a screenplay, um, which was never made, but I got paid for it. <laughs> so
1: um,
0: – and um, then I went and I started doing publicity for Dave at his Rapid Heart Pictures, which he was just launching at the time. So I was working on movies, and I was, um, you know, getting paid to write scripts, and at the same time that was happening, Femme Fatale's magazine published um, a big number of articles that I had started writing, and I was getting cover stories for them, and so that the odd thing is that I was kind of starting to find success um, in the indie and horror movie, um, you know, area of the business, so, but then that just... You know, Femme Fatales was kind of a step up. I got, I personally got more exposure um, on a more national level through the magazine. And then when the magazine closed down, that's when I moved to uh, back home to Racine, and kind of trying to figure out what I was going to do because I wanted to continue to write and I was wanting to make more movies. Um, Jerry Bookwalter offered to uh, finance a documentary that I'd wanted to make called Something to Scream mm-hmm. About. So.
1: And it just kind of launched from
0: that. there. Oh, thank you. I, I, awesome.
1: Yeah, I I saw it because I had a, I, I guess I must have got this at Kmart or something, uh, which you know you probably you probably would know that or not, but like there was a, uh, I guess uh, four four disc one with um, a bunch of A stuff. It had uh, something to scream about one and two on like a flip you know DVD, and then um, on the other one it was like At Ghoul School or something, you know, like, Uh and Filthy McNasty or something. So it was like a bunch of different things. And uh, I remember getting that and like, what's this something to scream about? I had no idea, you know, it's documentary or not. You know, I watched it. I just remember, I I just remember loving it because of all the amazing talent. Yeah, like, um, you know, Judith O'Day and Briggs Stevens, Melissa Rose. I mean, a ton of Deborah Sean. Had a ton of like uh, big time big time screen queens kind of you know like who we view yeah. as big time screen queens now who at that time were like I guess at the top of their game you know for sure you know what I mean like um uh so was it really like a neat experience going around and, and interviewing all of them?
0: Oh my god, dude, I was a fanboy, so I still am, you know. But when you're, gosh, I was probably in my. 20s my you're in your mid-20s and um all these actresses who you grew up kind of idolizing um in uh, your sleepaway camp and slumber party massacre and night of the living dead and and you know the five thousand movies that julie strain was in and so you know and i'm i'm a big slumber party massacre series fan so i you know i included a couple of the other girls from those other movies and um that just was like, you, you try to, I knew to be professional, (laughs) you know, face to face with them. And when I'm conducting myself with them on the phone, but inside my body was screaming like, Oh my God, I'm sitting across from close Rose. Oh my God. I'm (laughs) in Brink Steven's house. Like having dinner with her, you know? So, um, you know, they're coming to get you Barbara is like sitting right across from me and we're having a conversation. (laughs) And after that, she invited me to go back to her house and we, had a glass of wine, and so it's just it, it's it's surreal, it's exciting, and you know you kind of feel like to some extent that you've made it because you're um, interacting with them one on one, you know. So it was it was a pretty big moment for me.
1: Uh, well, uh, yeah, that's that's great for filmmakers to like be able to go and be a fanboy, you know like with these, uh, -hmm. with these, uh, actresses. Now, uh, I want to get back to kind of like, I guess the, the title of the show is the writing process and everything. Do you have like specific habits that you have to do as a writer?
0: Um, I find that I write, uh, if I'm going to write during the day, there's a coffee shop that I tend to go to. I kind of need to seclude myself because I'm very easily distracted. (laughs) So, um, I go to a coffee shop and the city next to us is in uh, Kenosha, Wisconsin. And there's just this little place right on the lake and you know, I get a spot next to the windows and I look out over Lake Michigan. Um, And that seems to kind of help focus me and like bring me center. And um, otherwise I also find that I'm better at writing at night. So if I'm at home, I can sit in my chair and it's kind of, it's quiet. I have something on in the background. Um, so, so that that will, I don't know, I like I need noise too during, if I'm, I'm either in public looking out over the lake where there's some noise in the background or I just have to have like a TV or radio going. So um, I do tend to um, write down thoughts throughout the course of the day. Things will pop in my head. So I'll sometimes carry a notebook with me or now that I've got a cell phone, you know, I'll just kind of, I'll just text myself ideas. So,
1: mm-hmm. um, well, that's interesting because like, okay. So I hear a lot of people say they, they write at coffee shops or whatever. Um, I'm one of those people who needs absolute quiet when I write, you know, like I can't have noises around me because I've got ADD. So if I hear literally anybody doing something, I, my, my attention will be uh, taken away. <laughs> Um, but mm-hmm. it's always it's always fun to hear that people like coffee shops. I think also, isn't it like, at least in LA, from what I've understood, if you write in a coffee shop, other people are writing in coffee shops. And, you know, maybe you can meet another writer or something, you know, like hanging out, doing that or whatever. Just don't want to read your scripts, you know, to steal ideas, you know? <laughs> right, um, exactly. Did you ever write out in LA, like in, in the coffee shops?
0: Um, well, the writing, no, most of my writing when I lived in Los Angeles was done in my apartment, actually. Um, so you've got to consider I'm, I'm in Los Angeles. We, I lived in West Hollywood and, um, you're, you're completely broke, <laughs> you know, LA is a very, and I'll, this is my advice to you. LA is a very expensive place to live. So, um, so to even go out and get like a cup of coffee was expensive to go out and have a you know to get a beer somewhere was extremely expensive. So when I lived there, it was literally I like spend a lot of time in my apartment um or going to like fast food restaurants. So right um so I would typically write um in my apartment when my partner wasn't home um so that I kind of had didn't have the the human distraction of somebody like asking me questions while I'm trying to write. So mm-hmm. and back then I also tended to write things in, uh, how do I say it? Like, um, I would go for days without sleep. So for example, I would sit at my dining room table and the script that I wrote for David Dakota, I wrote in four days because I literally did not sleep for four days. Didn't lay down nothing. I can't do that now, but at the time I did.
1: Oh, definitely. Well, that's really cool. Um, uh, now that you're kind of in your own place, you got your own stuff. like. Like, what are you, what do you do differently now that you used to, that, that you had done back in the day? Like, is there anything that, as a writer, like, you you feel like you've changed your, wit, your habits or anything like that? Um,
0: I mean, I don't, I guess, my no, I would, it, it depends on which project I'm working on, because there are times where I jot all of my ideas down on note cards, and I kind of lay out a map on the dining room table. To get the story focused, I've um, there are times where I'll just get like a giant poster board, and I'll draw the, the paradigm, and I'll fit you know I'll fill in ideas like I'll, I'll write really tiny and draw you know the timeline, so I'll just copy a timeline that way. Um, there's a lot of times too where I'll just kind of how um, how should I say freeform it like just write without any like I'll have ideas in my heads, but I in my head, but I won't um, necessarily have a, a, a stuff written down prior to, if that makes any sense. I'll just have like yeah, a, a, no. like a thought and just go with it. So That's I've awesome. always I've always um, been, I guess, kind of all all over the place.
1: Do you have you ever like written for other people? Like I mean, I know you did that stuff earlier. But like do you do that now where you write for other people or do you mainly write for yourself?
0: The only stuff that I do now for other people is publicity kinds of things, like I'll do some PR work um for others, but when it, as far as like scripts go, I typically write for myself okay. these days and then I go out and I find investors for the projects. So um I was I had kind of burned myself out on the journalism end of it. Um So I think I wrote 60 articles in like three years or something and, uh, and stepped away from it and never really went back to it. Um, I kind of compiled some of those articles into a book called Assault of the Killer Bees. And that was like my last big journalism thing that I kind of did. And since then it's really just been screenplays. So, um, I write for myself and then I produce, you know, I, like I said, I go out and I find the investors and, and take it from there.
1: That's always the best um, part. I,
0: yeah. I will say the one exception to that was I was hired. Um, I was approached um, by shout factory to do um, a documentary on this lumber party massacre series. And um, so that was a, a work for hire. And, um, you know, so I designed the outline and everything. And, um, and it was, but it was much more of a corporate experience than I had been used to because I'm used to kind of controlling 100% of my product, and that was not the case with that particular documentary. So, and it wasn't that I disliked it or anything, but it was just different from um, doing what I want, if that makes sense.
1: Oh, I think so. You're kind of because you're, you're a...
0: answering to other people,
1: oh, yeah definitely. Um, So I see you did a, uh, was it a a documentary or so about uh, I call him as I see him. Can you tell us a little bit about that? (laughs)
0: Um, So that was uh, an idea. It was, it was originally intended to go on the DVD and Blu-ray for the last movie that I did called safe inside. And, Um, It was just kind of a a gathering of my film career. I started making movies when I was in college, but I was shooting on an old-fashioned camcorder. So it was literally go to store and buy a VHS tape and the big, you know, the big box style uh, camcorder that you hold on your shoulder. Uh, Those were my first movies. And then it kind of projected to where I am now with doing the documentaries. And I've had things that are on, you know, sci-fi and chiller and, we licensed to NBC. And so um, that's what the documentary itself was about. And it was again, intended as an extra on the safe inside disc, but there wasn't enough room for it. So then we held off and we decided we were going to put it out. Um, I was going to do an October moon special edition and it just kind of never came together. So at that point I was like, well, let's just, let's just put it out there. Um, It had done some theatrical with it. What it would, what we did was we aired it along or we not air it. We showed it um, in theaters alongside safe inside Mm -hmm. during its release. And so that we got that exposure and then we had kind of waited for so long for something else to put it on um, that. I just decided to throw it up on YouTube and um, there had been a big distance between uh, I did. Screaming in High Heels in 2012, and then Safe Inside didn't come out until 2017, so I felt like I had kind of lost a lot of my fan base because I had disappeared for five years, so the intent of putting that documentary up on YouTube was to kind of see if we could get people to realize that I still existed. (laughs) Does that make sense? (laughs) Did it work? Um, I think so. I, people have contacted me about it, so I mean, it's not like I've got like this plethora of, you know, autograph seekers knocking at my door, but people have commented that uh, they've seen it. So I don't know. And it's it's a very different world from where when I first started writing and and directing. Um, you know, all of your exposure was in magazines at the time. Where YouTube didn't exist. You know, so. Mm-hmm you had a, your audience was much more focused and centralized with they had to go to fangoria or Rue org or um, Gorazone um you know i'm trying to think of what else was out the cine um star log so you only had a handful of magazines as a as a genre fan to go and get your information from and so more people knew about me i think because they were reading about me in these magazines and then they could find them. You know, it told you exactly where you could find the movies, like when they were airing on Showtime or when they were being released on DVD. And it's, I think now that everybody is, now that with the internet, I think the exposure is so, there's so many places to go to that I think, how do I say this? Like the concentration isn't as direct. Does that make sense?
1: Mm-hmm. No, I totally so, makes sense. I actually agree with that.
0: Yeah. So, you know, so I may get covered. Um, there was a, somebody did an article on me called, it was a place called Trainwreck Society. Um, and that came out like two years ago. So it's like, yay, I got some publicity, but how many people go to that site? You know? Um, and even right. if I get mentioned now on, um, on the Rue Morgue site, how many people have seen that versus or are they getting their information from other websites? Are they even going to room org? See, I don't know these things. And, and so I feel like i while I'm still getting exposure, not as many people are seeing it because they're, they're reading other sites. So.
1: Right. Well, interesting. Now I, I want to go back to that, like, like kind of the idea of, how different things are today than it was probably when you're first starting out and everything there, like you said, there, there was no, like there was not much internet, you know, like it's, it's not what it is today as far as internet goes. Um, There definitely wasn't any streaming um, at all until like 2005 or whatever when, uh, when Netflix started doing it. Um, Mm -hmm. And then there wasn't any, uh, there definitely wasn't any, it was it was harder to probably get like work in a way because there wasn't uh, you know there there it was harder to actually you had to actually go out and meet these people or you had to yeah to mm-hmm. write letters and and send them out or you know what I mean or call them up and say hey I need work you know what I mean but like yeah. nowadays you've got so many chances so many ways to do it uh, but it's also oversaturated then so so many people. You know, are there's like more competition, and then there's more, um, you know, different. Like it's just like distribution companies. There's too many of them now because, you know, they need it. You know, because there's so many movies. You know, being made. Mm -hmm. Um. So what is your what's your, you know, what are your thoughts on how things are heading? And do do you like the way like it is heading for independent filmmakers and writers, or do you feel like it's uh, it's just becoming like too crazy for that well the problem that i'm
0: finding now is um not so much how how should i put this the distributors now are kind of going out of business because they're because you know amazon and netflix are kind of taking have taken over in streaming and so dvds aren't selling blu-rays aren't selling um five years from now i don't know if you're even going to see any dvds in a store you know cds are already disappearing so um, uh, the the problem – the advantage is you get your stuff seen with Amazon Prime, for example. So all of my material oh, – the majority of my films are now available on Amazon Prime. The problem is that I'm getting paid literally one cent per view, and that's because I'm an independent. So uh, about a year ago, they – they they already weren't paying very well for their streaming service to the independent artists. Um, and then they switched it and they dropped it even less. So whereas, you know, prior to like back in 2017, I was probably making, we'll say nine cents of you, <laughs> you know, now I'm making literally like one cent per view. So my, my income for my films is dropping, but then you look at how it's doing and um, October Moon in particular um, is probably the one that's making the most money on, or has the most views on Amazon Prime. So in one sense, it's good because the exposure is there. I'm starting to hear from people again. Um, as far as people who enjoy the movie, I'm getting fan letter, not fan physical letters, but fan, fans are contacting me through Facebook or whatnot. Um, so that's good, but my finances are not as great. So, does, you know, it's so it's 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 a kind of a bittersweet situation. You want people to know your work, but I'm at an age now too where it's like it used to be. I just want people to see my stuff. I don't care how much money I make. Well, <laughs> now I have a mortgage, and you know, I'm I'm <clears throat> I'm well into middle age, and I got I'm thinking about pension and and retirement. In not immediate, but you know, 20 years from now, when when your your checks get smaller and smaller as time goes on it becomes concerning. And so it's, you know, which which what's more important to make the money or to get the exposure? So, um, and I can't say how often, I've, a couple of movies I've gotten because of other work that I've done, but that's not all the time. So I do still have to go out and seek investors. It's rare that somebody will come to me and say, hey, I want to give you money to make your next movie. I still have to do the footwork for it so um i'm I'm hoping that with the way that the streaming services work now that it leads more people at least to my work so that they will come to me and offer more work
1: definitely um I like that you know I like that you were saying um pretty much like now you have a mortgage you have a you know you have a life right now that you gotta actually um. I'm trying to remember who it was. There was a writer, Harlan Ellison, who once said that, like, uh, you know, somebody had come up to him and asked him to do, um, uh, you know, I, I forgot what it was, like some kind of interview, you know, right? And it was mm-hmm. a big interview, you know, and he said, okay, how much are you going to be paying me? And uh, the interviewer said, you know, oh, nothing, you know, you would get publicity out of it. Like, yeah, well, publicity doesn't pay my bills, sweetie. What are you, you know, um, what are you getting? Are you getting money out of this? You know, right? And then she goes, mm-hmm. yes. You're like, see, if you're getting money out of this, why shouldn't I be getting money out of this? You know, that kind of thing. Like, why Why would I help you? You know what I mean? And it certainly right. made me think about that. Like, and it's true. It's really hard. Like, uh, and he said, the one thing, the problem with, like, it was, like, people today is if you, if they don't interview you, right, they're going to interview somebody who will do it for free. You know, there'll be somebody there. And those are the people that oh, are yeah. screwing up over for the, all the professionals, all the amateurs that will do it for free, that will, you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. um, I I agree, like, it's hard as a writer to, like, like me right now, I'm, I'm kind of like, I'm, I'm. I haven't done anything really, you know, so I will take the exposure. I'll take whatever right now, you know, but pretty soon I will be like, Hey, I need to get paid for something, you know, like I need Mm -hmm. to pay for, for my, you know, for LA, you know, or whatever, you know, I will not do anything in LA for free,
0: you know? (laughs) (laughs)
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: You know, when you do do a lot of stuff for free, when you get, when you're, when you're trying to get your foot in the door and you're trying to just get exposure so that people know who you are, whether you're, talking as far as you know, professionally within the business or trying to get a fan base so that they purchase your items. Um, you know, I, I'm i personally one who doesn't agree with paying for an article. Asking somebody to pay me to do an interview doesn't make sense to me because, as you said, it's publicity. It, you know, it's – I. so I, I can't imagine – it's the same thing kind of when I go to a convention – and people ask me to sign autographs. They come up very sheepishly. And they're like, you know, how much are you going to charge me? And I'm like, nothing. I don't – I just I, – I don't – if you were – if you wanted something of mine as in a physical object, if you wanted a photograph that I had paid money to reproduce or if you wanted um, a DVD that I had to pay for to bring to the convention, you know, obviously I'm not going to give that stuff away for free because I paid money for it out of my own pocket. But for me to okay. autograph it for you, it's it just makes you yeah. like me, you know. So doing interviews right. for free, I'm like, all I'm doing is helping myself, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. I'm promoting my brand. So I don't, you know, unless you were asking to fly me somewhere for the interview, I I guess I could see. But even then, it's like I think bigger celebrities get – um paid when they go on these press junkets to promote a new movie. That's part of their contract. But for just, you know, some guy like me who's doing movies in Wisconsin or writing books or whatever on my own <clears throat> um, and you're on my own time, it's um I, I kind of see it as a privilege to be able to just connect with an audience. And so people who are listening to your podcast who don't know who I am um, will now think, Oh, okay, well guy, now I know that he's got movies on Amazon Prime. Well, okay, so they go to Amazon Prime. I'm only making one cent for a movie view, but I'm making something, you know, so, you know, it's, you know, it's 10 people listen to your podcast and then go and watch October Moon. Well, now I've made 10 cents. So I am getting profit out of doing this for free, you know, so I just, so, so I, I kind of, I disagree with people who think that they should be paid to do interviews, you know that's just the snotty uh, indie part of me, I guess. <laughs> you
1: no, know, that's, that's great. Cause like I said, well, Harlan Ellison's kind of a blowhard guy. Well, he's not, no longer with us, but he was kind of a blowhard guy who uh, sued uh, Terminator for being too close to one of his Twilight Zone or Outer Limits movie episodes or something. I don't know. So oh. I don't uh, <laughs> not necessarily, I just agreed that like sometimes, you know, you got to, you kind of to pick and choose where you get um, pick and choose where you get paid. You know? Yeah. So, and, um, you know,
0: and when I was working for Fangoria and for Femme Fatale writing articles, I just remember, and I won't say who it was because I don't want to get sued, there was an actor <clears throat> from Rocky Horror Picture Show who um, I asked to do an interview with. And it was for, he had been in, an up at the time, a new, a new movie was coming out. And so I asked to interview him for that article for the new movie and he made like it was a big deal and I sent it was literally five questions so um, and he gave me a lot for the it was sent over email that was his request and um, so when that came back he answered one question with one word he wrote yes <laughs> uh, for and that was it um, so it just it kind of annoys me when people act like um, it's a like I'm I'm you know you're giving me free publicity so I just don't understand like mm-hmm. when when actors and and directors and writers are are act that way. So
1: I don't either. Like it, it drives me crazy, but you know um, it, it becomes like part of that like you were talking about the convention circuit kind of thing and stuff and a lot of people you know, when people come up and ask you for an autograph or whatever at a convention, you know, and stuff like that. You know, some of those people get paid to be at the convention to begin with, you know. They, like, actually Mm -hmm. get a room, they get airfare, they get um, money, like, per diem for being there. And then on top of that, they have, like, like the big-time celebrities have rules where um, they actually get paid um, like, if they don't make their quota, you know, they get paid that, mm-hmm. by the convention. And I'm just like, oh, like you difference? know, I mean, yeah. Uh, yeah, they make the difference. So they get paid the difference of whatever they, they did not make if it's like a a crappy show or something or if it didn't – the turnout wasn't as big, you know. Um, yeah. And usually they, they still make their mo- – like a lot more money than whatever, right? Um so right. It, yeah. So it just drives me crazy when I see that stuff, you know, but – uh, as a filmmaker and and writer and everything, I just I kind of think like you know, an in, independent you know guy. Like I love the independent film stuff. Um, I just I it just drives me nuts because it's like, I mean, we're not like those people aren't Hollywood, you know? And they're they're still, you know, like us struggling to get by. So I don't understand, you know, like, you know, m- maybe Robert England might kind of earn that, I guess, you know, that kind of thing. But it uh, drives me crazy. Um, real quick, uh, before we go into like what you've been up to and stuff, um, I do want to talk about Shy Abnormal, which is, uh, I believe, is on Amazon hmm. if I'm correct, Prime Yeah. everything yes. uh, for
0: people to and watch. a known comedy I did. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, um, I, I got to ask about that because um, I, I, I see... Like uh, you, but you got Brent Stevens, Melissa Rose. I mean, it's just it seemed, and for a comedy, that's awesome. Uh, like, w- w- How fun was that to to write and to to make?
0: Well, that is the one project that I did where I worked with other people. Um, so the genesis of "Shy of Normal" is I went to see a play at the University of Wisconsin, Milwaukee, and it was the senior show and the people um the the students had to write their own play and then perform it on stage so the three plays that make up the movie were actually started were written by these by other college kids and i loved the show so much that i approached them all afterwards and said you know can i option the rights to make this you know to turn this into a movie i think it would be a great little anthology and so my writing within that movie itself um, was, I wrote the wraparound story, which connected the three. So it was this author who was played by Brink Stevens and she's got writer's block. And then her friend, Phyllisa Rose kind of says, well, why don't you just go out into public and stare at people and and make up stories about the people that you, about complete strangers that you meet. So that was my concept, but the stories themselves, the three stories that you see within the movie were actually originated by these college kids. Um, I, the only thing that I did to those three stories was kind of tinker with them to make them more theatrical, because obviously when you're – the way that they were written, they were written for the stage. So you need, you, know, you need to make them leave the one room that they take place in on stage so that they go outdoors and they happen in different spaces and tighten up some of the dialogue. So that was one of the few projects again that where I kind of collaborated with others in order to to complete the whole thing.
1: That's great. Um, well, okay. So what have you been up to lately?
0: Um, right now, <clears throat> the main thing that I'm doing right now is a documentary called "Everything I Need to Know I Learned About I Learned from the Letter People." And I'm in the um, investment stage right now. So we shot a trailer for it, a proof of concept trailer. And it's up on YouTube. If you type in that very long title or if you just type in Letter People Documentary, it will pop up. And it's just to kind of show you my idea of what I, you know, the documentary that I'm intending to make. So uh, I'm assuming you probably don't know who the Letter People are.
1: No. Not up no.
0: Okay. Yeah, okay, so I am a child of the 70s and 80s. Um, the Letter People was a program that started in the late 60s, and it was um, these blow-up characters who were the size of a five-year-old child, and each letter had its own personality and its own uh, thing that made it special. So Mr. M had a munching mouth, Mr. T had tall teeth, Teeth. Mr. F had funny feet. Um, and so they helped you learn your alphabet and your sounds. And then they also helped you learn how to put your words together. You know, take your letters to form, uh, take your sounds to form words. And then you take your words to form sentences. And and they also taught you morality. They all had their own song and dance that you did with them. They had their own workbooks. They had their own story cards. They had little movies. Um, There was a TV show on PBS um, that I think actually still airs. That was very an archaic form of Sesame Street. Um, so, but yet nobody knows about it. And it was so popular that in 1972, Time Magazine did a story on it. Um, so, and if you ask, um, so now 40 and 50 year olds from, you know, from my generation, if you ask them about the letter people, their eyes pop out of their heads and they're like, the letter people, oh my God, Mr. M was my favorite. I remember. And then they can go on this big diatribe about, their favorite part of uh, doing uh, the letter people in kindergarten. And as a child, you thought that these were living, breathing creatures. So they were actually your friends in your five-year-old mind. And they lived and they, they, came, they lived in letter people land, and they came to your classroom. And that was kind of how the teacher was supposed to introduce it. So it was this fantasy element to learning how to read and write. And um, if you ask the average person, okay, so you had the letter people in kindergarten, what were your other reading programs throughout the next 12 years of school? Nobody can name one. Nobody remembers, but they remember the letter people. So that's what this documentary is about. Was kind of like how effective this this reading and writing program was to five-year-olds that at the age of 50 your eyes still light up like you're five years old. You know. So just watch the watch the the teaser that I did, and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. So That's awesome. Um, so, yeah, so I'm doing that. So just, I'm looking for the investors right now. And, um, and then I'm also going to do a fiction uh, horror film. Um, I'm debate. I, I need to get my, the fire lit under my butt to get, to get the uh, the pitch put together for that. So I can also start raising money for that. It's uh, called basements. It's based on a short, I wrote a short story when I was in college back in 1994 Um, And that was my first experience writing something that the class that read it, it was for a a creative writing class. So everybody got a copy of it. And the reaction that I got to it was the first time in my life where I knew that I'd done something really good. You know, um, people talked to me about that story, like, for years afterwards because they were so terrified by it. Um, So I turned it into a screenplay. And I've tried for years and years to get it made. And it went to Wes Craven's company. It went to Sean Cunningham's company. That's what's, you know, you know who Wes Craven is, Nightmare on Elm Street. And it went to, and Sean Cunningham is Friday the 13th. So I sent it to his people. And it always came back with, um, it's, there's they're like, it's a really good story. It's really scary, but there's just something that is making us not want to take it. I could never – so I was like I always got up to the point where they really enjoyed it, but something was missing, they always said. There was something missing. And I've never quite figured out what that is. And I've kind of rewritten it and adjusted it several times over the years. And um, then maybe 10 years ago, I just kind of gave up on it. Um, Mm -hmm. So then I pulled the original short story out in 2016, sent it off to a publisher. So it is in print now in its short form, so it's only like 72 pages long, but you can get it on Amazon. Um, And so I'm going to now take that and I'm going to go the indie route with it. So I'm not, my originally I wanted somebody else to give me a lot of money to make it. And now I'm at the point where it's like, you know what? I'm just going to make it. I've made 13 movies. Mm -hmm. Why have I not made that movie? (laughs) It doesn't make any sense. And my editor, um, Derek Carey, who uh, has worked with me on multiple movies some time ago said, why aren't you making that movie? He's like, if that's if that was like the, the, your favorite script that you've ever done or your favorite story you've ever done. Why haven't you made it yet? And like, you know what? You're right. Why haven't I made it yet? So if everything goes according to plan, that will be my next project. And then I've also got October moon three in the script writing stages right now. So, I was hoping to film it this year, and I just – I've been so focused with the Letter People documentary that I haven't been able to sit down and, and, and concentrate enough on the October 1-3 script to get that finished so that I can go look for investors. Awesome. That was a lot. That's that was great, a lot of information, though. right?
1: <laughs> no, but no, but it's very – it's very good because, like, I mean, October moon and November sun were, like, Two fun little projects that you know that you you put out that, that tempe and they had they had something you know something to actually say they weren't just movies you know what I mean that um uh-huh. people make you know what I mean like they weren't just pure entertainment I like to make pure entertainment I don't like to make things that actually have any you know <laughs> like I uh-huh. I, don't, I don't I don't like to, to say I have a message because we, you know whatever uh not yet you know I'm not there yet as a writer but. I, I love that yours always did, you know, and I, I I'm i very thankful that you're that you came on the show tonight, um, to talk about that and stuff and the things that you're up to and that you're working on the third one, you know, which is awesome yeah. to yeah. me. You know? That's uh yeah. that's so cool. Um, can you how how can people reach you? Uh Facebook is the easiest way.
0: Um so they just you know, just friend me on Facebook. And, um, and then just send me a message. That's I uh, usually keep people up to date through there. Um, it's just Jason Paul Column. Uh, there's, so there's two. There's my personal one, and then there's one that's more of like the professional film one. Um, and then I also have a, an account for B-Boy Productions, which is my production company. So they can type in B-Boy Productions, or it's B-Boy, B-boy Productions 2000, I think. Like, yeah, nice. B-Boy t- Productions 2000. So yeah.
1: Uh that's awesome. That's great. I love it. I love hearing that stuff. So thank you so much. Um, is there anything that you'd like to tell people before uh we head out?
0: Yeah, mm, uh, just you know, if again if you like my stuff, get in touch with me. Um if you want to invest in my letter people production, please contact me. <laughs> um and I you know, just kind of look for my stuff. I've got um I've People request fan letters, or not fan letters, fan uh, pictures. I I send those out for free. I don't charge for those. So if people want stuff, you know, or if they're looking for old materials like my books or magazines from Femme Fatales, um, any that kind of stuff, let me know and I can direct you in the right direction as to where to either purchase them from me or from Amazon or whatnot.
1: All right. Well, thank you so much for calling in tonight.
0: Absolutely. Thanks for asking me.
1: All right, no problem. You have a good night.
0: You too. Bye bye. Okay.
1: Bye. Well, that was Jason Paul Column everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh tune in next month. Um I'm not sure exactly who it's gonna be, but it's gonna be the last episode of the uh I guess of this season here on Block Talk. And the last of it, period. Um as I said, we're Going away from Blog Talk Radio, we'll be going to Indie Film Cafe as part of um, Indie Film Cafe's uh, show. So it's, please check Indie Film Cafe on blog, on uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all that stuff. There'll be more information, especially on the Facebook, uh, or check out com. There'll be more information on there, too, soon. <coughs> but thank you guys so much for checking us out. I hope you guys enjoyed the show. And uh, please contact Jason uh, if you'd like to check out some of his stuff and have a great night. Bye.